0: Uh, please turn back in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. The title of the message this morning is A Dreadful Thing, taken from the last verse in our text. The <clears throat> epistle to the Hebrews sounds a solemn warning to persevere in the faith. Over and over we see this, uh, this, this urge, this pleading, hold fast, press on, don't turn back. It's a recurring theme we find over and over in this epistle to the Hebrews. You recall that Jesus had called his disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. And there were some Jewish Christians who were feeling the weight of carrying the cross. There was social pressure from unconverted Jews. There was the religious pressure, the societal pressure. uh, And it was enormous. And so, uh, many were tempted to turn back to the more convenient less turbulent life of Christless Judaism Another recurring theme we find in the, in the Epistle of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything else. Following Christ is better than a Christless Judaism because Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. His sacrifice is better than the sacrifices of the old covenant. His priestly ministry is better, and His covenant is better. Not just better, but better. It's the only effective deliverance from sin. Jesus alone can cleanse us of our sins. So the temptation to abandon the gospel, to abandon following Christ and go back to Judaism was not simply turning from one legitimate religion to another legitimate religion. It was to abandon oneself back into the dominion of sin. The only solution The only possible cleansing is in Christ. Now, our previous message, I entitled it, Draw Near, Hold Fast, Stir Up. And it starts out saying, because we have this confidence to enter the holy place, in verse 19, the confidence that we have in Christ, and because we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 21, then we ought to respond in this way. We should draw near to the Lord in full assurance of faith. We should hold fast our confession of hope and not abandon it to a hopeless religion. And we should stir one another up to love and good deeds. But that third admonition that we find in verses 24 and 25 includes this uh, call to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching or the day drawing near. And we find this uh, theme of encouragement is another recurring theme in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 3, we read verses 12 and 13, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There's that theme of not falling away. But here's this encouragement. But exhort or encourage, that's the, uh, it's the very same verb in the original language, exhort or encourage one another every day as long as it's called today. And why? Why is that so important? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of of sin. The reason here in chapter 3 that we need daily encouragement is there is a very real danger that we could be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that we could be taken in by the schemes, by the devices of our enemy. So we come to chapter 10 and we're called to encourage one another as well. <clears throat> and the preceding context, we're to encourage one another to love and good deeds but there's a subsequent context. And we identify that because we have that connecting word, for. So look again at verse 25. We're to be encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, for, if we go on sinning, you see there's a connection there. Encouragement is important not only to stimulate each other to love and good deeds, but in fact, to protect each other from the danger of sin. To, more to the point, to protect one another from outright apostasy and abandonment of the faith. And again, that's another recurring theme in Hebrews chapter six. We looked at that uh, that that warning. Those who'd been enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, if they abandon that faith, if they turn from Christ, they are lost forever. So we find this this uh, this coming back to that very theme again. But now he has unpacked the supremacy of Christ and his sacrifice, in his priesthood, in his giving us un, uh, free and unfettered access to his throne of grace. Now he has laid out for us just how wonderful and glorious salvation in Jesus really is. And he takes us back and says, now, don't abandon that. In fact, don't miss just how heinous and vile sin is truly is so we find in verses 22 6 and 27 a solemn warning first major point a solemn warning secondly an indisputable comparison in verse 28 and 29 and then finally in verse 30 and 31 a call to a holy fear of the lord solemn warning an indisputable comparison and a call to a holy fear of the Lord. Well, first of all, let's look at this solemn warning. If we neglect to draw near to the hold of uh, to the throne of grace, if we neglect to hold fast our confession, if we neglect to stir one another up to love and good deeds, the consequences truly can be dire. Think about that. Now, we have to establish first of all what does it mean in this verse to if we go on sinning deliberately? The entire meaning of this, of this passage hangs on how we interpret that statement if we go on sinning deliberately. And the word sin is in the present tense, which indicates a continuing action, which is why ESV translates it, go on sinning. ESV says keep on sinning, same difference. But it, it, it indicates one who continues to sin without interruption. And then uh, that word deliberately has the idea of, of, of a high-handedness, of an intentional, uh, a heart given over to sin. Not an occasional uh, battling with sin and sometimes failing, but it's a heart given over to it. Now, I would hope that there's nobody here this morning that would argue that a real Christian can reach the place in this life where we no longer sin. I hope we all recognize that the battle with sin that Holy War Bunyan speaks of is a reality for every single child of God. But in Jesus Christ, we've been delivered from the condemnation of sin, from sin's penalty. And we've uh, been delivered from the bondage to sin, from sin's power. And we are one day going to be delivered from the presence of sin, but in the meantime, we have a battle on our hands, don't we? Sin doesn't hold dominion over us any longer, and yet we still find ourselves crying out with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We find ourselves uh, saying amen with Paul when he says, I find this law at work within me when I want to do good, I want to do right, evil is right there with me. Now, when he speaks of a law there, he's not talking about an obligation kind of law, like the law of God is an obligation, do this. But it's more like the law of gravity. It's something you can't avoid. I can't get away from the fact that if I drop something, it's going to fall on the floor. It's just, that's just what happens. Not because it should, but because it will. And in the same way, there's this law at work in every single one of us, whether you like it or not, that even in your best moments, when you want to do right, you have a battle on your hands with sin. That's a reality we all experience. And we look forward to that day when we will be set free from the even, even the present sin where we will love him, as the hymn writer says, with an unsinning heart. But that day is not here yet, is it? So, let me ask this question. Why is it that a sincere Christian, a genuine Christian, continues to commit sin? Why do we still struggle with sin? Well, uh, Sometimes Scripture says it's because of faint heartedness. We get worn down, we get discouraged. Uh, we our resolve is not what it has been at other times. And the 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 cost of discipleship seems overwhelming. The the, the demands of obedience seem daunting, and we find ourselves more susceptible two particular sins not every kind of sin obviously but particular kinds of sins maybe grumbling maybe maybe self-pity maybe lust maybe anger maybe uh, uh making compromises that in your better moments you wouldn't dream of making and so we fail we fall we sin another reason that real christians fall is just weakness There are areas in your life of uh, indwelling or besetting sin, and those are areas of particular weakness. And so when temptation comes to that unguarded, that unsecured part of your life, there's a weakness and you fall. And that effort to persevere seems like more than you can muster in the moment, in the moment. I want to emphasize that. But there's another reason that real Christians commit sin. And that is because there are times when our hearts just get out of whack. let's be honest we prefer the passing pleasures of sin to truly pleasing the Lord Jesus. And in those moments, we can plunge headlong, plunge headlong into sin. We can do what we know we should not do. And there's a sense of deliberateness about it, no question. We harden our hearts. We defile our consciences. We do what we know we must not do simply because that's what we want to do at that moment. And that's true of every single redeemed saint. It should not characterize our lives, but it's still a reality we must all engage in. So you ask the question, was that what verse 26 is warning us about if we uh, continue to sin deliberately? And the answer is yes and no. And we'll come back to that. Later, But I want to draw your attention, first of all, to 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Turn with me, if you would, please. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. This is a very, very important pastoral ministry, biblical counseling verse. Why do we do the things we do? What is behind our failures, our sins? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 tells us, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Why do some fail to live up to that which they ought to? Well, some are, are faint-hearted. They need to be encouraged. Some are weak. They need to be helped. But some are idle. And that word idle has a, 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 a component of deliberate trespass stepping over a line you know you ought not to step over. It could be failing or refusing to do that which you know you should do, a sin of omission, or it could be doing that which you know you should not do, a sin of commission. And it calls for a more firm response, not just encourage, not just help, but admonish, get in their face, rebuke, call them to repent. But in all three cases, he says, be patient with all of them. Don't give up on anyone who names the name of Christ. And a real Christian can fall into any one of those three categories. A real Christian can be faint-hearted. A real Christian can be weak. And a real Christian can be idle for a time. Now, please hear me. I don't want anything I say this morning to be construed as saying it's okay to be casual about sin. It is not. Romans 5, Paul uh, expounds the glories of justification by grace through faith. And in fact, he comes to the end of the chapter and even says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But then anticipates how we evil men will twist that glorious teaching of salvation by grace through faith. And so he asks the question in chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? May it never be. That is unthinkable. We died to sin. How shall we then live in it? We died to sin. That doesn't mean all sin has died in us. We still have to put it to death. As Pastor Mark has been preaching the past several weeks and will we continue addressing this evening. It's unthinkable that a real Christian can accept the idea that it's okay to sin all you want, that grace might abound. But it's a reality that every single one of us, at some points in our lives, fall prey to that very lie of the enemy i can sin now and repent later i can sin a little bit and manage it and not uh it won't get out of control i can manage the the practice of sin i can even manage the consequences of sin no you can't but the enemy wants you to believe it he wants you to say things like just one time as if he's really going to give up after you surrender that one time right no That's why we have the wonderful book called Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. We need to be aware of the devices the enemy uses to draw us into sin, and we need to be aware and exercise and practice those remedies that God's Word provides for us. But every true Christian wrestles with indwelling sin. Now, here's the distinction. I ask the question, is this passage talking about An apostate given over to sin, absolutely. Or is it talking about a Christian wrestling with sin? And I said, yes and no. Here's the distinction. The true Christian repents of his sin. He battles against his sin. He's grieved by his sin. He's not as grieved as he ought to be. None of us is as grieved by our sins as we should be. But we are grieved. And in fact, we're grieved that we're not grieved even more. Have you ever found yourself saying, Lord, I, I hate my sin, but I don't hate it nearly as much as I should? That's actually the prayer of a tender conscience who recognizes that sin is utterly hateful and recognizes there's division and prays, as the psalmist said, unite my heart to fear your name. The hatred is not as strong as it ought to be, but it's real, it's present, sincere. The apostate indulges in his sin. He protects his sin. Now, even a true Christian might conceal his sin for a time, but again, the Spirit of God is going to convict him is going to discipline him, is going to bring him back and restore him to repentance. Whereas the Spirit doesn't do that for the one who has completely rejected Christ. But the good shepherd goes after his wandering sheep. He brings them home. The blessing of the new covenant is he's written his law on our hearts. And that gives our hearts a new inclination to want to obey, to want to serve, to want to please the Lord. Even though we still have that battle going on. Turn with me to First John if you would. Keep your finger in Hebrews 10, because we're we'll going to be right back there. But in 1 John chapter 1. Verse 7. If we walk in the light, speaking to Christians, as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses, present tense, us from all sin, not just has cleansed, because we need ongoing cleansing, right? In fact, he says in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just if you have confessed your sins. It's an ongoing reality. And he says in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the, the satisfaction of the wrath of God. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The ongoing battle of sin is a reality in the heart of every true Christian. Hebrews 10 is warning us against a careless attitude about sin. It's not specifically targeting the Christian and battling and dwelling sin. He's talking about something far more sinister. He's describing the hypocrite. Look again at verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after having received a knowledge of the truth, there, remains, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no sincere sorrow for his sin. There's no repentance in his heart. There's no love for Christ. John describes it this way. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. That's John 3.19, just three verses after John 3.16 that we all love so much. The people loved darkness rather than light. Why? Not because they had a battle on their hands, because they had utterly surrendered. They surrendered. Hearts were evil. He's describing the hypocrite who loves darkness more than he loves light. Now, again, is there anyone in this room that doesn't wrestle with a degree of hypocrisy? Is there anyone in this room that doesn't profess more than we actually deliver in our Christian life? The answer is no. We all wrestle with some degree of failure. And and I would even say hypocrisy. Now, I want to say that carefully because there's a deliberate hypocrisy that tries to present yourself as more righteous than you are. There's an honest, sincere brokenness that acknowledges our sin. Okay. But the hypocrite is given over to that hypocrisy. The Christian's grieved by his sin. The hypocrite's not. He indulges it and he makes no apology for it. He conceals his sin because he loves it. His deeds are evil and so he loves darkness rather than light. And when it speaks of those who have been uh, received a knowledge of the truth, it's not talking about Christians. It's talking about people who have been exposed to the gospel. They've heard it. They've understood it. They've even uh, uh, professed to embrace this. There is some external evidence of change in their lives that convinces others and they come into the church for a time. And yet, that person ultimately wanders away, falls away, dives away. He abandons the faith, abandons his profession in Christ. And over and over, we see that in Scripture. That is evidence that he was never truly converted. So, when the writer of Hebrews uses the term, the knowledge of the truth, he's not equating that with true salvation. He's talking about a genuine exposure, familiarity with the truth, and yet, a rejection of that truth. And that knowledge merely compounds this hypocrisy because greater understanding, greater privilege demands greater accountability. So anyone who's had the privilege of hearing the truth and more than simply hearing but professing to embrace that truth, he incurs greater judgment than the one who never hears. And that's a serious warning to us. We are those who are hearing the truth. We are those who are saying, yes, I believe. That's why when a person says, I want to be baptized, we seek to be very careful. I want to hear your testimony. I want to know that you understand what it means to be a Christian. That in itself doesn't guarantee that a person's converted. We want to look at their lives and see, is there a consistent pattern of obedience, of a change in your life? But even then, there are those who can bring forth a temporary, apparent conversion, like Judas Iscariot, who by all estimations of the other 11 seemed to be a believer. And when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, nobody looked at Judas and said, I know it's going to be him. They're all saying, is it I? No one had any idea it might be Judas because he convinced everyone except the Lord himself that he was a changed man. Well, the dreadful judgment that's here reserved for the deliberate hypocrite, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins. In other words, he stands condemned. His case is hopeless. Calvin says it this way, this text applies only to those who desert Christ in their unbelief and so deprive themselves of the benefits of his death. It's talking of those who reject Christ, not those who struggle with sin. In Galatians 2 Paul is speaking of Peter, and he he recounts the time that Peter betrayed Gentile Christians. The Judaizers showed up. They they put a pressure on Peter to withdraw and not eat with the Gentiles because good Jews don't do that. And so, he sinned against his Gentile brothers and sisters, and Paul had to rebuke him. But the evidence of Peter had not abandoned the faith that he repented— He was restored. The stiff-necked hypocrite doesn't repent. He hardens his heart even further. He might give a pretense for change, but there's no true change. And so he shuts himself off from the benefits of Christ's death. And all he has to look forward to is a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire, we read, that will consume the adversaries. So we... See, it's very clear he's speaking not of struggling Christians, but of adversaries, of hypocrites, of apostates. Now, please don't miss this. I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. Every Christian remain, or struggles with remaining sin. Paul talks about that, that flesh, that principle of remaining sin that every one of us struggles with. Our flesh minimizes the severity of sin. Minimizes the consequences of sin. It's not really that bad. You can manage it. It it welcomes the lies of our enemy. But over and over, the Word of God directs our attention to the cross of Jesus Christ. It says, How serious is your sin? Look at the cross. Nothing less than the bloody, grotesque death of the very Son of God is necessary for my sin and your sin to be cleansed. Nothing less. How serious is our sin? That's serious. And the hymn writer says, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor who believe the evil great, to discern its nature rightly, hear his guilt, its guilt must estimate. See the, uh, and it tells us, look upon the Son, the, 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 the very Son of God, who bears that awful load, that load of our sin. That's how we can assess the severity, the seriousness. Of our sin. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to see that. You now, the real Christian will never have to bear the brunt of the wrath of God. But we find these warnings addressed to true believers be sure that's not you. Lest you deceive yourself, lest you succumb to the deceitfulness of sin, be certain you're clinging ever and always to that only source of hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's this solemn warning. Secondly, I want you to see this indisputable comparison in verse 28 and 29. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is an Old Testament principle that's found numerous times in the, uh, in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and elsewhere as well. But then he says this, how much worse punishment. Do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God, has pervained the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So we found over and over the Hebrews that Hebrews is comparing the old covenant and the new covenant. And the new covenant is superior in every way. Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant, superior in every way to the Old Testament priests, and his sacrifice of his own self is superior to those Old Testament sacrifices. So it stands to reason that if one sins against the law of Moses and the Old Covenant system, however serious that might be, how much more serious when the love of God has been manifested to us and pouring out his wrath on his own dear son, how much more grievous ought the one be punished? Ought one to deserve when he sins against such grace? How much more vile and heinous is such sin? Now, In verse 26, he speaks of setting aside the law of Moses. And how grievous that is. He he despises the word of the Lord. He he disregards the commandment of God, breaks it, and the consequences are he's cut off. So, think of the hypocrite who abandons Christ. B.F. Westcott speaks of a, 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 a threefold indictment describing how wicked that is. He says, they trampled underfoot the Son of God. He profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified, and He outraged the Spirit of grace. He wants us to get some sense of just how vile, just how wicked, just how sinful sin really is, particularly when it's committed by somebody who's sinning against knowledge. Knowledge. Someone who's been exposed to the grace of God, who understands something of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, first of all, this deliberate sin is a wicked act. It's trampling underfoot the Son of God. Rather than bowing down to our priest king who deserves our worship, rather we're walking all over him. Now, we we know that phrase, right? We use that, walking all over someone. It's an abusive trampling of another person, of mistreating them when they deserved far better. How much more does the Son of God deserve our worship rather than our abuse, our trampling? What a wicked thing it is to treat him with contempt. But secondly, he calls this deliberate sin a wicked attitude. It's profaning the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified word profane means to despise or to regard as unholy or as common, as not important. And so to consider the blood of Jesus shed for us as something utterly worthless is a terrible thing. It's an arrogant attempt for this outpouring of his precious blood, the greatest demonstration of love ever shown. Thirdly, deliberate sin is a wicked assault. It is an outraging offense against the spirit of grace is an insult against the one to whom we ought to have the greatest possible gratitude. Philip Hughes in his commentary says, this incredible exchange of the truth about God for a lie, this willful rejection of grace and light in favor of unbelief and darkness is the sin unto death from which there's no remission that is referred to in 1 John chapter 5. Serious comparison. Well, let's look thirdly at this call to a holy fear of God. Verse 30 says, for we know, again, that word for is a connecting term. The one who has so sinned against the Lord, so offended the spirit of grace, so insulted his mercy. Well, why is that a big deal? Because we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Doesn't just we know that we know he said that. We know him. We know that. We know him. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, people don't talk about the fear of God as much today as in former days. It used to be very common to speak of a a committed Christian man as a God-fearing man. And the emphasis on the fear of God was very common in if we can say, Christian vocabulary. that in our day, there's so much emphasis on the love of God and far less on the holiness of God or the justice of God. In fact, there are those who would say, well, 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 the God of the Old Testament is a God of fear and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Last time I checked, Hebrews was in the New Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament, but he's doing so to buttress to support his argument that the New Covenant is far better than the old. And so, if it was a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God in the old covenant, how much worse under the new? John Murray calls the fear of God the soul of godliness. Proverbs tells us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Children, what's the beginning of reading? What's the first thing you got to learn when you learn how to read? Got a couple of seminary students here who are taking first year Hebrew. What's the first assignment you had? Learn the alphabet. I remember that first day I walked into Hebrew class when I was in seminary and we were said, and he said, by tomorrow you need to know the Hebrew alphabet. And I'm looking at it going, are you kidding? No, he wasn't kidding. You won't learn anything until you know the ABCs. The beginning of wisdom, the starting point is the fear of God. What do we read of the fool of the wicked man? There's no fear of God before his eyes. That's why you can rebuke a man who's a hypocrite, who's an apostate, whose heart is turned against the Lord, and it, it, it has no effect on him because there's no fear of God before his eyes. He doesn't tremble. He laughs and scorns at the idea that God would be offended by his sin. But we read here, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That word fearful. I love my English Standard Version. I love that we use that. But let me tell you, I think they could have used a stronger word. NIV says it's a dreadful thing. And I think that's really what we're talking about. It's a terrifying thing. It describes those who on that last great day of the wrath of God call on the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. They're not startled. They're not experiencing twinges of fear. They're in full mode or full panic mode. They're overcome with terror and with dread. And hear me, God's wrath is dreadful. God's wrath is terrifying. And when we come to chapter 12, we're going to read of the way the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. He disciplines His own children. But even His discipline is painful. It's unpleasant. And the way to avoid that corrective discipline is to walk in the fear of the Lord. I want you to notice something, though, also very important here. Verse 26, if we go on sinning. Verse 30, we know him who said. The writer is including himself. He's not saying you, some uh, unnamed hypo- hypothetical people out there. He's including himself in the warning, saying every real Christian needs to take this to heart. There's no Christian exempt from the sober warning contained here. Now, again, based on what, Other scriptures tell us a real Christian cannot commit apostasy. A real Christian, nothing will snatch us from his hand. He will come back and he will get us. A real Christian, a true Christian cannot abandon the faith ultimately. But neither here in Hebrews 10 nor Hebrews 6 do we find that point made. We simply find the solemn warning put before us. Because the author doesn't want to say anything to soften the impact of this warning. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the reality is, if you are careless about your sin, if you're casual about your sin, you ought to be concerned. If you're grieved by your sin, that's a good sign. If you're discouraged that you continue to struggle with sin, that's actually a good sign. If you wish you could live a more holy and godly life, God has placed in something in you that desires to please him. That's a good thing. But recognize, any true Christian can fall into grievous sin. We can. And if that is true, if a Christian does that, the Holy Spirit's going to go after you. He's going to convict you. He's going to discipline you. He's going to bring you back. But that process can often be very, very Painful. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he'll reap. And if you reap the painful consequences of your sin, they may be temporal, but they will be painful. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God temporarily and certainly eternally. A real Christian will never have to face the ultimate eternal judgment. But I don't want to flirt. with the discipline of my God who loves me enough to go after me. And I don't think you do either. Let us walk with godly fear. So, drawing this to a close, let me say, first of all, don't miss the impact of this solemn warning. If in your heart of hearts you have no true regard for Jesus Christ, if you truly prefer the pleasures of your sin more than the beauty of godliness. You are in serious peril. Don't fool yourself. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. So, I want to plead with you. If you've been casual about sin, if you have played the game of church without a heart that is softened toward Jesus Christ, his arms are extended. Are you weary? Are you tired of it? He says, come to me, I'll give you rest. Whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. The invitation is open. Uh, the, the state motto of, our, of South Carolina is, "Dum spiro spero." while there is breath, there is hope. Well, that's my evangelistic, that's my gospel statement. As long as you're breathing, there's hope. You can flee to Christ. If you desire, if you want him, he will receive you. The apostate has lost the ability even to want him. But if you want him, I urge you, come, even today, don't put it off. Your flesh says, "Man, it's not that big a deal. Or it says, okay, it may be a big deal, but, but, but you can wait till later. And later, it never seems to come. Today. Now, let me say this to those of you who are Christians, but you're struggling with sin. That's all of us. When a Christian commits sin, it is still true that we are trampling underfoot the Son of God. We are still disregarding his precious blood by which he cleanses us. And we are grieving or insulting the spirit of grace. Now, you have a new heart. You have the law of God written on your heart. But with that reality, to engage in sin is an even more grievous, even more unthinkable thing. And yet we do it. So, when a professed Christian falls into serious sin, Or maybe just a a casualness and a hardness of heart. How do you know? Is this fatal and he's not even a Christian? Or is this a Christian who's in trouble right now? How do you know if he's returning to his true self, unredeemed? Or if he's denying who he really is and it's a temporary fault? Well, I've been in pastoral ministry for more than 30 years. And I've had the very sad vantage point of witnessing a number of marriages that are interrupted by adultery. Husbands cheating on their wives. Wives cheating on their husbands. James calls sin spiritual adultery, and it's an apt analogy. Please hear me. Sin is spiritual adultery against God. But there's a distinction. There's a radical difference between an otherwise faithful husband or wife who... For whatever reason, strays for a time, either falls or plunges into an adulterous relationship, as grievous and wicked and horrible as that is, for that person, it's actually out of character. And at some point, the Spirit of God convicts them. Maybe someone rebukes them. Maybe they're caught. Maybe they repent on their own. And they return, and they confess, and they seek forgiveness. And I've seen many, many marriages restored, even though it's been very painful. That's a picture of a Christian who stumbles into serious sin. But there are others, serial adulterers, where adultery is their character. And he's given utterly over to that adultery, and you cannot budge him or her. I've seen husbands and wives where the, the offending partner has, has, has committed this grievous sin, and they've repented, and they've sought, for, uh, sought uh, forgiveness, and over time, the outcome is a stable and healthy marriage. Restoration has taken place, but make no mistake, when that happens, the consequences on the offended party are enormous. The pain inflicted, the betrayal experienced is devastating, That unfaithful husband has, as it were, trampled underfoot his wife. He has profaned or disregarded his sacred marriage vows. He has outraged the Lord by his sin. And yet not in a manner that's irredeemable. He still repents. He's still restored. The glory of the gospel is that he is gloriously gracious to us. And when one commits such a sin and truly repents, he changes. He's humbled by his sin. He makes no excuses. He's horrified. He's filled with sorrow. He seeks the reconciliation with that offended partner and he's willing to do the hard work required to earn back his wife or her husband's trust. And it is hard work and it takes time. A real repenting Spouse doesn't go and say, "Uh, I've repented, I've asked your forgiveness, so go ahead and forgive me and let's let's get on with life. No, he realizes the severity of his sin. The serial adulterer might be confronted with the grievances of his sin, but he really didn't care because he is more devoted to his adulterous lifestyle than he is to his wife or her husband. He doesn't feel the pain that he's inflicted on his wife. In fact, I've seen husbands blame their wives for their adultery. If she was a better wife... I wouldn't do this or that. How shocking is that? That is evidence of a hard, hard heart. And the reality is that serial adulterer has no intention of turning away from his sin. The hypocrite, the apostate, has no intention of repenting. So there's a difference between a Christian who commits that one act that is out of character, however grievous it may be, and even however long it might last. But ultimately, he repents and returns to the Lord. And in many, many cases, that marriage can be restored. There's a difference between that and the one who just makes shipwreck of home after home and marriage after marriage and life after life with no regard for the heinousness of that which he's given himself to. He's not acting out of character. He's expressing his true character. Now, let me say this. As we look at this warning It's a sober warning. It's a solemn warning. And if you look at it and go, but that could never happen to me. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says, let him who stands, or let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. If you think that could never happen to you, you let down your guard and that makes you more vulnerable to grievous sin. And so the message to every Christian in this room is keep up your guard. That's evidence that it's not talking about you. The evidence that this is not describing you is if you hear this and you, uh, you, you stand, as it were, trembling at the Word, you, you stand and you recognize what it means to fear God with a holy and healthy fear of the Lord, and you guard your heart with a holy distrust of your own self and sinfulness. How do I know, am I like the true Christian who has wandered off into spiritual adultery, or am I like the serial adulterer who's abandoned the Lord? Well, if you're asking that question, it's actually a good sign because the one who's abandoned really doesn't care. He's not, he's not searching his heart. If in your heart you, you want Christ, you want to return to Christ, you want to be uh, received and restored to Christ, you may. The natural man has no desire for Christ. He may not want to go to hell, but he doesn't really want Jesus you want Jesus? He's ready to receive you. He promised he would if you'll come to him. You know, we read that we're given bold, confident access to a throne of grace where we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When do you need mercy and grace the most? When you're guilty. When you know you've really, really sinned grievously. That's when you need his mercy and grace more than any other time. It's not just mercy and grace to help you through hard things. It's to restore you from sin. And that's why he died on the cross, and that's why he stands as our faithful priest today, as the propitiation of our sins. As we approach the Lord's table in just a moment, this is a gracious provision that God has given to us to remind us of the blood that was shed for our sins, of the body that was pierced and broken for us, of the tremendous price our sin required and of the great cost that was paid. It's a visible reenactment of the sacrifice Jesus made for us, and it's a reenactment of our embracing that, of receiving, of eating the bread, of drinking the cup. So as you, Christian, as you receive that, Element, these elements. Consider once again what it is Christ has done for you. We're told to examine ourselves to make sure that we receive this symbol of the blood of Christ, the symbol of the body of Christ in a worthy manner. That doesn't mean I've had a great week this week and I haven't done anything wrong. It means I'm seriously dealing with my sin, I'm seeking God's forgiveness. I'm not holding on. I'm not hiding. I'm not clinging to. I'm not making provision for the flesh. I'm seeking to mortify my sin by the grace of God. And I need this reminder of just how tangible, just how real, just how powerful his grace is. That's why we have the Lord's table. So I urge you, number one, the the table is for those who are in Christ, who have followed him in believers' baptism. And then that's the covenant sign and now the covenant meal to receive together that communion that God has provided for each of us. So I want to ask the men who, have, who are going to serve to please come forward this time.